Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Our scripture reading for today comes from Ephesians 5. Uh, Ephesians 5, we'll be reading uh, 18, verse 18 through 33. Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. Of course, we believe these things uh, were written by the Apostle Paul, but they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And so therefore they come to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were speaking to us, were teaching us. Uh, So let's hear together the word of Christ. Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you were with us last week, I began telling the story of how I met Paige. We met in 2006 uh, at a Christmas party not very far from here, right up up on Wayuka Terrace. And if you remember from the story, I I saw her come into the party. I had gotten there before she did and was immediately, I mean immediately taken by her, struck by her. I got one little minute to go and talk to her. Uh, I didn't get her name. I didn't get her number, but I was so impressed by her and then one of her friends pulled her away from me. That's where we left off last week. Um, Well, two years later, I uh, got a job as the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Covington, Georgia. I was only 26. I was single. They should never have hired me. But anyway, they did. And uh, I was there as a young pastor trying to get to know other pastors in the area. And uh, I reached out to this guy, Rob Rayner, one day and, you know, got together with him. And in the process of getting to know this guy, I realized that his daughter, this guy, this pastor guy's daughter, just so happened to be the mystery babe from the party two years before. But he had bad news. He said that she had moved to Wyoming. And so I thought, man, well, I'll never be able to meet her now, you know. Um, but then a few months uh, later, a couple months later, I was getting dinner with a friend, uh, a friend named Kevin, 
And uh, we were just talking, and you know, we were talking about girls and girls that I was interested in. And I said, you know, there's just one girl that I just, I know it's weird. I only met her one time, but I've now met her dad. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I want to, I'd like to, you know, figure out a way to get to know her. And I said her name, and he said, oh, and he knew her. He said, oh, man, Paige. He was like, he said to me, he said, if you would get to know Paige, you would fall in love with her and marry her. And so if you want to hear the rest of the story about how that happened, you got to come back next week. But <laughs> if you were here last week, we started the series on marriage. And a lot of these sermons in this series, because I want to do a really broad view of the idea of marriage or biblical marriage or marriage according to God's design or whatever you want to say, I want to, uh, we're going to take some more kind of topical, broad Bible approaches like last week. We talked about this big idea of the glory of God. But because this passage to, to, to this morning, I've been, I'm used to saying tonight because we've been uh, meeting in the evenings. But this morning's passage is so uh, important to the Christian understanding of marriage. I really want to walk through it and, and help you help us understand how it's all connected, how it's connected to the gospel, how it's connected to each other. These aren't just isolated commands. It's interesting that what we're really seeing in this passage is that marriage and how we understand marriage and how we are married as husbands and wives is actually a response to the gospel. It is in the responsive side of the book of Ephesians. Paul has this typical pattern in his letters where he talks about the gospel up front and then he says, now you got to do this in order to respond to the gospel. And, and, and the, the amazing power of the gospel that Paul describes in Ephesians, that we were without Christ, as Will just so wonderfully prayed. We were dead. We were ruined in our sins, but by the mercy of God, we have been made alive with Christ so that one day in the coming ages, I love this, God can pour out the riches of his kindness in Christ upon us. And if that's true, if God has done such a work in us by the power of the gospel, then that changes everything. And it does change everything. Because the beginning command, the beginning passage of Ephesians chapter 5 is to quote William Barclay, is the highest standard in the world. And it just says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God, okay? What do you do in response to the gospel? Highest standard in the whole world, be like God. <laughs> Go be like God. That is the calling. And, and it's a heavy calling, but it's also a wonderful calling. I, I was thinking this week about the uh, philosopher Charles Taylor. I read this article that cited him, and Charles Taylor had this, uh, he's a secular philosopher, and he, he talks a lot about the, uh, the, the, the relationship between authenticity, and he says that's the secular ethic. We want to be authentic. The, the, secular, the ethic of the secular age is authenticity versus order and rule and structure, right? And so you're seeing kind of the, order and rule and structure kind of going away because, as Charles Taylor says, we're moving toward authenticity. The amazing thing about the Christian worldview, though, is it, it doesn't really pit order and rule and structure against authenticity, but rather it says that they're, they're sort of one in the same, right? So life in Christ and joy and happiness, the, the design that God sets you toward is not found in some sort of man-made fundamentalism, and neither is it sound, found only in self-discovery, right? It is found in being like God. It is found when you understand 
that God, who is neither a list of rules nor is he totally uh, undefined, but he is beautiful and good and right. It's, it's found when you understand that God, who is living, is your life. And your true identity and your true joy and your true self is when you find yourself in him and when you find him in you. That is when you are most alive, most authentic, most your true self, most uh, true to who God made you to be. And, and that's actually, this is what Paul's saying here. If, because of what Christ has done, now imitate God. Be who you're supposed to be. Be who God made you to be by being like him, by being a reflection of him. Now, I just introduced like the biggest idea ever, and we have to move on from it. But this is where Paul is grounding this whole chapter and all of the instructions that we see in Ephesians 5. And, and then he goes on to say, if, if you're going to be like God, if you're going to imitate God, there's a couple of things that should be true of you. And he, he says, we should be known by our love. I'm not going to talk about these, but just, just so you can follow the outline here. We should be known by our love. We should pursue purity and obedience. We should seek to be wise. And then we get to our text today. It's kind of the fourth sub-point under Paul's big point of being an imitator of God, and he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. In order to imitate God, we must be, the Christian life, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul actually uses an interesting kind of phrase here to introduce it, don't be drunk with wine. Uh, drunkenness obviously changes how you are, how you act, how you think. Uh, there's a sense in drunkenness when you, where you lose control. And so what Paul's saying here is don't lose control. Don't be ruled by alcohol. Be filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I get questions all the time. You know, a lot of churches have different opinions on, on drunkenness and alcohol. And again, I, I don't have time to get on this road. At, at Christ's Covenant, just so you know, we, we, we believe there's a biblical way to consume alcohol that's pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't include drunkenness. Um, but there's a lot of questions about that. And I just want to use this opportunity to plug the sermon talk back where we'll talk about this in more specificity uh, on the, pod, the sermon talk back podcast this week. But we don't have time to get down there today. But you understand the point. What Paul is saying here is don't be controlled or ruled or changed by alcohol. The thing that should be changing you, the thing that should be shaping how you act and how you think is the Holy Spirit of God. And then where Paul goes from there is um, he continues his outline. If you've studied Paul's letters, he's actually, I mean, sometimes he seems confusing and he does chase some thoughts here and there, um, but he's actually incredibly orderly if you can follow the structure of the arguments that he's making throughout his letters. So if you're gonna like use outline tactic here, he go, he, now he has some sub points of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the big idea, be imitators of God, Part of that is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, here's some things that will be true of you. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the heart with your Lord. So you, you should be worshipful. If you're imitating God and filled with the Spirit of God, worship should be um, indicative of your life. The second thing is thanksgiving. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians should be grateful, Spirit-filled Christians. Evidence that you're filled with the Spirit of God is that we are known by our gratitude. And then the last one here, and this is again a sub-point of the point to be filled with the Holy Spirit under what it means to be an imitator of God, is submission, submitting to one another out of reverence 
for Christ. What he's saying here is there are certain relationships that you will find yourself in where submission is necessary, where God and his providence has placed you underneath the authority of someone else. Now, in a secular day and age, this, this idea is so unnatural, it's so strange, it's so uncommon. Even in the first century, it was so uncommon that what is Paul saying here? He's saying, yeah, it's uncommon. It's evidence of a spirit-filled life. It's evidence that something has happened in your life. If you can find joy and peace in submission, then that is evidence that something is going on. And then he gives three examples. Again, you can keep following the outline. Uh, so now we have the big idea, be in church of God, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, submission is part of that. And then he says, okay, here's some examples. Wives submit to husbands, children to parents, bond servants to masters. Again, I know you bring up bond servants and masters, that's an explosive topic. Sermon talk back, okay, we'll, we'll cover it there. We gotta keep moving today though. But I, I just, I give you all of this as an introduction because I want you to see this, right? I want you to see that Paul's instruction for marriage here in Ephesians 5 that is so important is not just this isolated, hey, let me, let me give you a couple thoughts on marriage, but rather it goes back to being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it, the, 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 rule, the roles that Paul's about to lay out uh, for husbands and wives are evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in your life and that it's all directed at imitating God for the glory of God, for the sake of God, because our true self is found when we find ourselves in God. And there's so much in this passage, and we're actually going to come back to this passage next week. Next week's going to be a little more practical. We're going to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of roles for husbands and wives, but, but the three things I want to look at this week with you um, that we see in this passage very clearly is, number one, is a structure for marriage. Number two, a model for married people. And then lastly, is a picture that marriage displays. A structure for marriage, a model for married people, and a picture that marriage displays. So first, a structure for marriage. Now, the first thing you notice in this text, it gives a very clear positions for husbands and wives. Husbands are called to lead the wife and the family. This is the husband is the head of the family. And wives are called to submit to uh, their husbands. The way I like to say this is wives are called to allow their husbands to lead the family. And again, we see this structure. It's not just something we see here. We see this uh, all over the, the, the Bible. We see this idea of leadership uh, that has been given to husbands. Um, this idea of um, submission that's been given to wives. Now, you, you, you look at this, again, in 21st century kind of secular culture. It's an explosive idea. So before we you know, kind of get into you know, this passage, I just want to say, it's, it's never fun to be wrongly stereotyped, right? And so you may be coming here today, and you kind of have an idea of, of how Christians view marriage. Uh, you know, I want you to just see this for what it is. Don't, don't wrongly stereotype how Christians may understand uh, God's order and God's design. Uh, I have a friend, she's like a big executive type in New York, and she was doing an interview um, with someone and uh, after the interview, the HR person that was in the room with her said, hey, you're not allowed to ask someone where they're from in an interview. And uh, she was like, well, I was just, you know, trying to make conversation. You know, why is that such a big deal? And uh, the HR person said, well, people can stereotype based on, you know, where they're from. And my friend said, well, you know, I'm from Alabama. We grew up, it was a friend that I grew up with. She said, well, I'm from Alabama. You know, I, I've been stereotyped. I didn't think that you know, I, I'm not going to do that with the person. And then the, the HR person said to her, 
Yeah, well, exactly. Like, if I had known f you're from Alabama, you would have never gotten this job. So <laughs> that's how people see us. Um, but, you know, we're, we're coming through. We're making it in this world. But anyway, people do this. They create stereotypes. They, they wrongly characterize things. And, um, and, and I just want to say, if you've wrongly characterized this passage, nowhere, just read this passage. No, nowhere in here do you see this domineering husband who's making a subservient wife do whatever he says, this scared and weak woman that's saying, yes, master. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what you see here. The reason that Paul is giving the command the reason he is saying it is hard is because the women that he's talking to are so strong and so capable. And so he's having to say, hey, look, I know this is hard. Finding yourself in God's order here is actually going to be a sign that the spirit is at work in your life because these are not natural things. It's actually going to be a sign that you trust the Lord and you trust God's design for marriage. And as we're going to see, being able to submit to your husband's women and for men, being able to lead your wives in a loving and sacrificial way is great evidence that God is at work in your life. So a few notes on the structure of marriage. The first thing is that, and this is very important, the structure of marriage is modeled after the structure of God. The structure of marriage is modeled after the structure of God. Everything in all of creation says something about God. God created everything to scream his glory, to declare his glory. You know, Paige always makes fun of me for getting geeked out about the periodic table. I mean, some of y'all have heard me talk about this before. You know, how the elements relate to one another and how there's so much order and how, you know, people that understand elements, I guess scientists, you know, can can pick where elements will fall. I mean, it's just, it's amazing the kind of order and design and beauty, even just in elemental structure. It says something about God. It says something about his order and his beauty and his design. And marriage is the exact same way. Marriage actually speaks not just to the order and the beauty of God, but actually it speaks to the very ontology of God, to the very makeup of God. As Christians, we believe in a three-person God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the thing about each member of the Trinity. They're equal. They're totally equal in essence. They're totally equal in their godness. Uh, to quote uh, the Nicene Creed, they are each, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, very God of very God. Yet, the members of the Trinity, even though they are all God, fully God in their godness, they have different roles. The Son, Christ the Son, submits to his Father. The Spirit of God, fully God, submits to both the Father and the Son without complaining. And in this structure, as they understand, though, though totally equal, and though totally capable, and though totally beautiful, as they understand that there is a structure and an order in their even Trinitarian relationship, there is glory and there is beauty in that. So the structure of marriage, I just want to say this, it's, it mirrors the very structure of God. Uh, it's what the uh, church fathers called, you've heard me say this before, the, the great dance. They're, as the members of the Trinity understand how they are, the roles that they are called to within this structure, there is a movement, there, there is a seamlessness that is 
glorious and beautiful. Second thing, the structure of marriage is based on God's design, not on ability, okay? It's based on God's design, not on ability. The husband is the head of the wife, not because he's smarter than the wife or because he's necessarily stronger than the wife. Though I do hope, ladies, you want a man that's stronger than you in most cases. Um, Or because he has more money than his wife. He may be able to do none of these things, and yet he is still called to lead. John Piper gives this great illustration of a couple going on a date. They're walking out to their date, and they get to dinner, first date, and in the course of uh, the dinner, the, 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 the lady in the, in the couple says, I talks about that she's been studying jujitsu her whole life, and that she has a black belt, okay, in jujitsu, and she's a master. I mean, she's a killing machine, okay? And so, you know, but she's a great godly Christian girl. They have their nice little date and and then they they start walking back home they they, you know they start walking away from the restaurant and while they're walking they get jumped people come out to attack them try to take their wallet or whatever what is the appropriate response of the guy in this scenario you know (laughs) right and I just want to say it's not for him to be like well you've got the black belt you know (laughs) you know go ahead no, no, the appropriate response, even though he may get clobbered, is to protect her and to care for her and to lead her in that way. And he may go out there and get clobbered and then she may give him a swift kick to the head and they run away. So she may actually be able to solve the problem, but, but the, the way that God has designed marriage, the way that God has designed this relationship is that he is supposed to show initiation and leadership. And that is not something that is defined by who is more capable. It's something that's defined by how God has created uh, marriage and how God has ordered this beautiful institution. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, right? Women, you're not called to submit to your husbands because they're smarter or more capable or, you know, better. They may be none of those things, right? You're called to submit to them as to the Lord. Because you love the Lord, you, you respect the design that he has called into place. A third thing to remember here is this, and this is very important. Wives are called to submit to your husbands, not women called to submit to men, right? Men aren't called to be the head of every woman, right? Husbands are called to be the head of your wife, right? There are certain structures that God has put in place like the church, like the family, where there's order that God has given us. I, we're not right to take the, the, the way that God has designed those structures and apply it to every structure, right? We want to follow God's design for these sacred institutions that are very near and dear to him. Now, there's a lot more that I could say about this. There's a lot of talk just even about the idea of masculinity and femininity that comes up in this. That's a whole different series. I'm not even going to get to that on the talk back, but all right. And then uh, the next point, the final point here, is that it takes a lot of faith and courage to live out, well, to obey God in general, but to live out God's structure uh, for marriage. And I want to talk really more here to the men. The, The implied calling here, men, is that you are called to be the head of your family, of your wives. And if you're single or married, men, I hope you're listening here. 
this is an incredibly high calling. As hard as it is for, for women to trust God's structure here, it's really harder. There, there's, much more of, there's much more responsibility that's been placed on the man. You know, one day men, and I want to say this to husbands, one day men, fathers, husbands, it's, it's you that will stand before God and give an account for your family. How you led your wife, how you cared for her, how you cared for your children, how you led your children, how you led them toward God, how you led them to find their identity in God, that God may be glorified in them. You are the head. You are the responsible. That is what headship calls you to. And there's more here. Men, you are called to love your wives as Christ loved the church. The same kind of command is not placed on her. If you look at the text, obviously women, I want you to love your husbands in an honoring and sacrificial way. But this specificity is given to the men, to the head. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, who gave himself for her. Jesus died for his church. And Jesus died for his church when his church was so undeserving of anything. Not worthy of his death, not worthy of his acknowledgement, yet he gave everything while we were sinners. Men, you're called to sanctify your wife. Again, women, I hope you have a desire that your family would be holy, but this command is not given to the women here. It's called to the men, the head. Your responsibility is to wash your wife and family with the water of God's word. Are, are you the chief sanctifier in your household? Men, you're called to care for your wife as your own body, right? You're called, to, you're called to care for her in the same kind of way that you would care for yourself. And this takes an enormous amount of courage and humility. The idea of headship is not an easy one, but it's evidence of a spirit-filled life. Men, if you'll lead in this way, this is evidence for you of what it means to be filled with the spirit, what it means to imitate God. And again, wise, we've been talking about submission, but again, this takes an enormous amount of faith and courage, especially if you're trying to follow a man and honor a man that's not doing this well, that's not doing these roles faithfully or not doing them well. It's, it's, it's very difficult to trust God to continue to follow him and trust his leadership. And of course, there's some exceptions in this that, that I don't have time to get to today, um, but in both cases, for men and women, you're going to need great faith and great courage to follow God's design here. And you're also going to need a model, which brings me to my next point. The second thing that we see in Ephesians 5, we've seen a structure for marriage. But secondly, I want to look at a model for married people. A model for married people. You know, Ephesians 5, again, lives out, uh, lays out one of the highest and most difficult standards ever. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Just think about that. I said this last week. This is the greatest love story ever, right? There has been no more sacrificial love story than this, Jesus and his pursuit of his church. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a prophet named Hosea, and God says to this prophet, this holy man of God with this great reputation that's doing all these great things, he says, go and marry Gomer the prostitute. It's going to ruin your reputation. It's going to ruin what people think about you. And yet, it's exactly what he does. He obeys God. He marries the prostitute. He redeems her. He brings her back home. He, he brings her into a safe place. He brings her into a wonderful place. And you know what Gomer does? This, this, this woman that's been showed so much love and show, so much faithfulness and so much kindness, she goes and she's unfaithful to Hosea. 
She goes out and she's with other men and she even has children with these other men. And you know what God says to Hosea? Go and bring her back. And don't just bring her back, bring the children back too that she's had with these other men and love them and be faithful to them and be faithful to her. And God, and and Hosea does it. And God does this to Hosea because what God is saying is, Hosea, I just want you to get a picture, a glimpse of how much I love you and how deeply I am going to display my love for you and my love for my people. And this, this is what this is. This is the same thing. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loved an unworthy bride. He gave himself for her. This is a fierce love. This is a deep love. This, this isn't, you've heard me say this before, this isn't marketplace love, right? Most of the love that you experience on a day-to-day basis is what I call marketplace love. It's not really love. It's an exchange. It's you do this for me, I'll do this for you, and we can say we love one another, right? We're exchanging things. But marriage is covenantal. And I just want you to hear this. Covenant is not based on utility. It's based on position. Covenant is not based on utility, right? We don't love our wives, husbands, because we can get a lot out of them. Covenant's not based on utility. It's based on position. When you marry a girl and make her your wife, her position changes and she enters into and and you enter into with her a covenant. And if you think you're too good to love somebody that doesn't have too much Utility, remember, this is exactly how Jesus loves us. He needed nothing from us. He had nothing to gain from us. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't love us because of utility. We can't do anything for him. But through faith, we enter into covenant with him and we become his bride and we become the sons and daughters of God. You know, think about this. We understand covenant when it comes to our children, right? You have a child, usually... You understand covenant. You understand that there's a responsibility that they are yours, that you're called to love them. And children, typically, for those of y'all that have children, there's not a lot of utility there, right? You know, especially if you have a three and five-year-old boy, you know. In fact, they're much more of uh, a liability than an asset, right? But they're my children, and I understand covenant with them. I understand that they're mine, and somehow in our culture, we don't get this with marriage. We have, we've, we've moved it into marketplace. We've, we've so marketed it that it's become a marketplace good. And so often when I'm talking to people, they'll say, you know, I, he just didn't hold up his end of the bargain, or she's just not giving me a good deal here. We even use marketplace language. This is, this is not covenant. This is not marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, not in a marketplace way, in a covenantal way, in a deep way, in a sacrificial way. Jesus was without sin, and he willingly took on his father's wrath against all sin. You could say it this way. Jesus literally went through every hell of those who would be redeemed to save his bride. There is no love that is this deep, that is this great. And brothers, this is what we are called to. This is how we are called to love our brides. And the only way that we have a chance of even kind of mirroring this is by realizing, is by looking to Jesus and by realizing that he has done this for us, that he has loved us in this way. And I wanna say this to all the single guys here. Single guy, you might be hearing this. 
I think of like the, the, the passage in Matthew 19 when Jesus is talking to the disciples about divorce and they say, like some of you single guys may be saying now, who then can be married, right? Who, who can do this? You know, or maybe the pressure's going up. It's like, golly, if I have to love a girl like that, I got to find the perfect girl. And if, I'm, and if you're having that thought right now, you are missing the entire point. There's no girl that's worthy of the kind of love that God is calling you to, as worthy as that girl may be. She's not worthy of this. It, this is not, we don't love our wives because of the evidence of a worthy wife. We love our wives this way because it's evidence of a spirit-filled life of someone who knows the living God, who's someone who believes that they've been redeemed in God, and now they want to imitate God. We, we love our wives like this because this is how God loves us. We're imitating God. Jesus is a model for husbands, and I, I've been talking about this, but because, of course, all this is anchored in the Trinity, Jesus is also a model for wives. As I've said, he is fully God, and yet humbly and willingly submits to his Father's will. And I would say the same thing to you ladies. We, 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 don't, we don't submit to our husbands because they're worthy of it. We don't submit to our husbands because we're weak. No, it's not that. We submit because we, we out of reverence for Christ, because Jesus submitted. We're not better than him. And we recognize that God has put in place great order. G, uh, so we've talked about a structure for marriage. We've talked about a model for married people. But last, I want to look at a picture that marriage displays. A picture that marriage displays. You know, when I was uh, at Auburn, in fact, it's probably going on right now, when all the students started coming back into class and, you know, getting their dorm rooms set up or whatever, they had these big poster sales at the Haley Center. And uh, they still have those? Anybody? No? People don't use posters anymore. It's all digital now, you know? But anyway... Um, but anyway, they had these big poster sales. It was cool. You know, you'd go through, you'd look through. But like the posters that were super cool back then, you always knew, you, you know, you'd go to like a girl's dorm room or a cool guy, a really smart guy's dorm room. They'd always have like an Ansel Adams, you know, picture up there. And did we get any of those chaps? I asked you, okay, so there we go. You know, like moon over half dome. And I remember seeing that and being like, golly, this is amazing. The Yosemite Valley. And, you know, the U.S. government actually hired Ansel Adams in the 30s to take these pictures so people would go to the national parks. It was a big push to get people to go to the national parks. You always thought he was just a guy taking pictures. No, he, he was getting paid. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, the U.S. government was smart because people see these pictures. And what does the picture do? It draws you in. I, I, I've never been to Yosemite, but I really want to go. And when I get there, I probably want to go see the moon. I want to go, like, relive the picture that I've been seeing. I want to live that scene. I want to be a part of that. You know, I want to stay. You, you find yourself with that. You see a picture, and you're like, you want to stand where the person is stood when he took the picture. You want to kind of get into the scene. You know, this, uh, we did our big family trip a couple weeks ago, and we listened to The Magician's Nephew on audiobook, right? And, of course, the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and just the way, I mean, even in, on all the stories, but I love the way that Aslan is described in that book. It's the creation part of the Narnia series. And he's just so warm and so loving and so great, but so strong and powerful. And you're, man, I wish there really was a king like that. And, and, and it's, it's intentional, right? It's, it's C.S. Lewis. He's telling a story because he wants to draw you into the king who really is like this. This is what a picture, this is what an image does. It, it draws you in. And here's the deal. This is exactly what marriage is. 
This is why God designed marriage. This is how Paul concludes. He says, look, he goes back to the very beginning. He quotes Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes back to the very, the, the very beginning of marriage, the design of marriage, this mystery of man and woman becoming one flesh. And then he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. It's not just about, you know, offspring. It's not just about a man and a woman coming together. It's not just about, you know, the propagation of God's creation. Although, you know, although those things are all a fruit of marriage. But what is, what is he saying here? He says, no, no, no. This, all this, this is a mystery that refers to Christ and the church. This institution, this institution of marriage that I have created from the very beginning is a mystery that refers to Christ in the church. The Greek for mystery is the, the word mysterion, and it means something that we didn't know, but now we know. Something that wasn't revealed, but it has now been revealed. From the beginning of time, when God created marriage, he had a purpose in mind. He had a revelation in mind. He had a Yosemite Valley in mind, and he has put forth all over the world, even here, this picture, this image, these pictures everywhere saying, this is what I'm calling you to. And if that's true, then don't you see how important the roles are? Husbands, don't you see, as you are loving your wife in a sacrificial and, and self-giving way, you're representing Christ. Wives, don't you see the important role that you play in this? You're part of the picture. Don't mess up the picture. The gospel is at stake. You know, I always tell guys, you know you're doing this right. You know, you know you're filling God's role for you in marriage. If one day your children go to your wife and they say, Mama, how much does Jesus love me? And I say, Husbands, you know you're, you're filling God's command here is if on that day she can say to that child, how much does Jesus love you? Well, do you know how much your father loves me? That's how much Jesus loves you. You know, he's always sacrificing for me. He's always giving to me. How he loves me so deeply. That's exactly how Jesus loves you. The child will say, wow, Jesus loves me like that? In the same way, you know, if, if for, you, for you guys, if, if a, your child goes to your husband and says, you know, what does it mean for me to love Jesus? What does it mean for me to follow Jesus, to be a part of Jesus? You remember to say, well, you know, you, you know my relationship with your mother and how we're together, and how we're united, and how she, she seeks to be faithful to me, and to love me, and to respect me. That, that's, that's what it's like, son. That's what it's like, daughter. Gospel representation. This is the mystery of marriage. This is the purpose of marriage. It's a living parable, right? It's a parable that goes on and on and on to draw people in. And that's why, obviously, I pray and I hope for our church, that you would have a great marriage, that you would have great marriages. And even if you're single waiting to be married, you would have a great vision of marriage. If you're not uh, married, and maybe God's plan for you is to never be married, but you would have a great and right image of this. And if you're married, that you would have a great marriage. The gospel is at stake. And, and I just wanna say that we will always fail in this. <laughs> if we don't realize how faithful our bridegroom 
has been to us in Christ and how deeply he pursues us and how much he loves us. If you realize that we collectively are his bride, that he is pursuing and loving, then and only then will you have the capacity to love and pursue and to trust and to be faithful in a way that, that really represents the gospel and that ultimately pleases God. It's a profound mystery. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, the testimony of marriage and the testimony of faithful marriages, Lord, would draw us to the, the true marriage, the true union, the true one flesh. Father, Father, you've called us you're, as a response to the gospel to be an imitator of God, to be like you, to be found in you as you are found in us. And Father, we believe that the Spirit leads us to this. And so, Father, as we follow the Spirit's leading, I pray for the men here, for the husbands here, that they would sacrificially, selflessly, fiercely pursue and love their wives. I pray for the women here, that they would trust you enough to allow their husbands to lead them to submit and to be faithful and respectful, Lord, of the, the order that you've put in place. Father, I pray that as this begins to happen, that, that this great dance that, that reflects the Trinity, as this begins to happen, Lord, that, that the little pictures of the gospel, images of the gospel, little foretastes of the kingdom would be in every house that's represented in this church and would spread throughout our city so that Christ may be known and exalted. And Father, I pray now too that, that you would increase our faith, you would lift our heads, that we, we would look away from things that are false, from things that are self-focused, from things that put us at the center of the story, and that we would find our identity in the completed and finished work of Jesus. May our faith, may our hope, may our joy be found there. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.